This week on Rotten or Righteous, we ask the question, does that mean we're about to witness a mutiny? Will the Minotaur gore poor Lucy and maybe a few more because the storm made him sore and Eustace's snores and voted for Al Gore? I'm not sure, but they should find a shore before the Minotaur gores more. Welcome back, Sleepy Time Rotten and Righteous. Welcome to Rotten Time Team. Welcome to Rotten and Righteous, the only podcast that is very intimidating. If you could see us, you'd be intimidated. He has investigated the legal ramifications for impaling relatives. He's Luke Taylor. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and wow. fellow podcast members. Luke. Do not touch his tail. Aslan the Great gave him his tail, and no one, repeat, no one touches the tail. Period. Exclamation point. He's Scott Judge. You know, I have often commented I would like to have a tail. Well, I mean, seriously, I would like to, I'd just like to walk down the street and just like a big dog tail, just waving it back and forth like I'm just a happy dog. Unfortunately, you just have that vestigial tail that you have to just make do with. <laughs> you ever see that movie Shallow? Yeah, Shallow Hal. If I could have like a functional tail, that would yeah. be good. Like like a third arm almost. But if it was right. just like a like a like a tail that drug behind me, like I was an alligator, like maybe a white alligator, um, <laughs> that would be worthless. But if okay. you had a tail like a like a shepherd, then you could just wag it. Yeah, I would want one that I could like use to hold stuff. I have never seen like a tail extra... that is that useful. There's got to be an animal in all the movies. All the like fantasy creatures use their tails for that crap. There's got to be an animal that has a functional tail. Okay, I could like great. hold a hold a donut as I was. You know, you could get a you could get a Doberman with like their chopped off tail and play ring toss. <laughs> I guess put, that's a function. Or you can put your sunglasses on its butt. That's my favorite thing to do with my mom's schnauzers. <laughs> They've got those little short stuffy tails. I, yep. I just put my sunglasses on it, and then I pet oh. its head. So then it, my sunglasses just wiggle around on his butt. <laughs> Stupid. As for me, well, the only consolation is that everyone is finally as miserable as me, except for that show-off talking Scott. He's one of those annoying glasses, always half-full types. I'm Zach Geiler. Boo! Uh, let's just go ahead and dive right into our, our discussion. First of all, Scott, I'm so happy that we have finally able to free you from that cupboard you've been stuck in for the last two weeks. Let's take a poll. Oatmeal cookies, yay or nay, with raisins in them. It depends. Are they crunchy or chewy? It, either. I, I could go for a chewy oatmeal cookie if it's good and it's got that like sweet glaze on top. With raisins yeah. in it? Yeah, I like raisins. Raisins are fine. I like oatmeal cookies also. I don't prefer the raisins, but I can eat the raisins. 
like yeah, an o- like a like it a would little just be better without raisins. Just take the right. raisins out. But like like a little Debbie oatmeal cream pie. I'm not going to turn down an oatmeal cream pie. Oh, me neither. But those don't have raisins because they little Debbie knows how to make them. Well, these ones that I ate that were out of the wrappers and in the bottomless warehouse that I found had raisins all over them. <laughs> Actually, due to the pandemic, because little Deborah, little Debbie couldn't be out so much, she's now known as Big Deborah. <laughs> Here's Scott repeating a meme that he saw on Facebook and pretending it's a joke. <laughs> she had to live off ho hos. <laughs> Man, I've been living off ho hos ever since I turned 18. Holla! (laughs) (laughs) Don't cut that out. I have no idea what that means. Just leave it in. All right, let's dive into our review. The last film in the Chronicles of Narnia. This one's called Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The movie begins as all good movies should begin, with England having planes flying over it. Edmund is in line, trying to enlist in the army, even though he's underage. Now the dude at the recruiter's office knows he's underage, and so he asks, Are you sure you're 18? To which Edmund responds, Why? Do I look older? To which I say, Good joke, movie. Good joke. Well played. You know, and if he would have just tore off a little piece of paper and wrote 18 on it and put it in his shoe, he said, yes, I'm over 18, and it would not have been a lie. Well, he didn't lie. He said, why do I look older? I know, but he could have went on deeper. <laughs> but then Lucy busts in and just humiliates Edmund. She's like, hello! Eddie Pooh, you're supposed to be helping me with the groceries, my little Eddie Eddie yum yums. So Eddie's just, oh, he's embarrassed. And all these British cannon fodders that are around him are just laughing. Just laughing their way to the front line. All these cannon fodders. I'm pretty sure back, I'm pretty sure they didn't even like check people's IDs because there's all kinds of stories of people getting into the military too early. I don't even know if they cared. Outside of the recruitment's office, Lucy, who the movie just wants us to believe that she just thinks she's so hideously ugly, like nausea-inducing horrendous, is envious of every single girl she sees. But the problem I have with this whole situation of Lucy and her perceived ugliness is, we've watched these movies three weeks in a row, back to back to back, meaning in the past three weeks, I have watched this girl grow up. And so, in my mind, all I'm seeing is, you know, little little snaggletooth Lucy running through the, the wardrobe into Narnia, opening up Mr. Tumnus's Coke bottles with her teeth. That's what I see. I want that sweet, innocent Lucy. I don't want her to be envious of girls. It's gross. Stop it. Lucy's envy is the least of the two youngest Pevensey's problems. Because World War II is still raging. It's still raging, guys. Raging? I don't know how else to say it other than it's raging. And Lucy and Edmund had been sent from London yet again. Yes, Susan and Peter are off in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but Ed and Lulu are sent to relatives in North England, 
And no, they're not going to the professor's house from the first movie. The book tells us that he lost most of his fortune and lives in a smaller cottage in the times between these two films. But she and Edmund have to go to the scrubs. And the scrubbiest of scrubs that has ever scrubbed is the Pevensey's cousin, the sociopathic Eustace Clarence scrub. <laughs> You're here for Eustace. His face. I feel bad for him. Oh, I mean, um, I, Lucy I, is uh, I, like uh, 20 compared to Eustace's face. I do not feel bad for him at all. All because of the three children we see on screen, Eustace has had the most successful career in Hollywood. You're right. He did an incredible job in this movie. I mean, movie. he's I a great him. actor. He went on to, to be in some war movies. He was in the Maze Runner films. He was in a couple films with Jennifer Aniston. The kid's doing all right. <laughs> Not feeling too bad this for old Eyebrows MacGruber. See, ask his name. I already provided Eyebrows MacGruber. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Will Poulter. Otherwise known as Eyebrows McGruber. His eyebrows are, like, very intense. He's not a bad-looking dude. He's just got some eyebrows. I have to go to the dentist at 10.30. Just FYI. I don't know what that means. What time is it? It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, that would be in one hour 45. You can't show I mean, up a half hour late and then you're like, <laughs> oh, by the way. Well, I can't change my dentist appointment. I believe you can. Anyway, we should be able to finish an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, right. Because if you would hurry up, we are introduced Mouth. to you. Shush. We are introduced to Eustace as he is writing in his journal about uh, his secret wish to treat his cousins like insects and shove them into a jar or pin them on the wall. In short, <laughs> Eustace is an only child who is forced to share his space with his two cousins, and he is not happy about it. One afternoon, Lucy and Edmund are bemoaning their lot in life in the room that Edmund shares with Eustace. Then... Edmund notices a painting. It's a it's a seascape with a little sailboat that looks remarkably Narnian. Much to their surprise, the painting starts to move, and the ship seems to be sailing right at them. Eustace walks in and notices the painting and just flips out. He goes to tear the painting off the wall, causing the room to fill with seawater. And if you ask it and if you dear listeners are asking yourself, hmm, I wonder if they're wearing sweaters? Then let me tell you, they sure are. After all, what's a Chronicles of Narnia movie without a good old-fashioned sweater swim? Sweater swim. As the children swim towards the surface, they realize that they are not in Eustace's room anymore, but are swimming in an actual ocean. And the ship they saw in the painting is coming right at them. Oh, no! Luckily... <laughs> but underwater, it sounded more like... That's it. Back in your penalty box. Luckily, <laughs> the first one's not over. Luckily, the crew on the ship notice the children in time and jump in and rescue them. Now stop me if you've heard this one before. How many Narnians does it take to rescue three children who are treading water in the open ocean? The answer is apparently 47. 43, because so many people jump into the water to save these three kids. So many people. All of them in the You're boat the jump sea. off, and now they're all trying to save them. No one's there on the ship to help pull them back up. They're like, huh, maybe we should have left one of us up there. <laughs> <laughs> the 
The children find themselves on board a parade float that's meant to be a ship. Lucy and Edmund are just <laughs> tickled pink to find out that the ship is, in fact, Narnian. And they're even more delighted to find out that the boat belongs to none other than their old pal Prince, I mean King Caspian. It's his ship, the Dawn Treader. Turns out, Narnia is completely at peace after only three years of Caspian's reign, so the king hopped on a boat because nothing else was happening, and they had a three-movie deal to complete. Well, um, did anyone else think that this boat looked like that, uh, you know the little the, the boat swing that they have at the county fair? <laughs> yeah, I've been on the run <laughs> down to King's Island, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I imagined. I knew this or- looked familiar, and I think I saw it in the Macy's Day Parade last year. Hey, Scott, you want to ride I'm on that boat swing? Ha ha! I sure do! <laughs> Did you... <laughs> Did you think this ship looked dopey? Like, if yeah. this was the greatest ship in your fleet, I you mean, would have been overrun by the uh, the evil enemy, like, years and years ago? I'm pretty sure I have a John boat that looked more intimidating than that, that ship. I've seen, you know... <laughs> I think little, they just stole it from the little, county fair. Little John like, boat with like a half, <laughs> a half horsepower outboard motor on it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was flaky, flaky. But I really didn't mind that much. I was like, all right. So they're all happy to be on Caspian's ship. Meanwhile, Eustace is just having a real, real tough time because a talking mouse named Reaper Cheap. Just almost kills him right away, and I kind of wish the rodent would have at this point in the movie. And then, Eustace asks to whoever will listen, um, where am I? To which a minotaur answers by saying, the fast fighter ship of the Guardian Navy. And then Eustace gets the vapors and passes out. To be fair, if I was in his shoes, and I woke up nowhere, not knowing where I'm at, right now I'm on a Mardi Gras float, floating through the ocean, and a minotaur's like, sup? I'd probably pass out, too. It was a lot. <laughs> it's a big adjustment for such a quick period of time. Right. I was just trying to have a nice sweater swim in my bedroom. And then next thing I know, i got minotaurs talking to me. Caspian brings Edmund and Lucy into his quarters. The king hands Lucy her dagger and magic healing drank. And... We also see that Susan's bows and arrows are in there. Why does Caspian have Susan's bows and arrows in his bedroom? Don't ask. Then, to Edmund, he offers a chance to touch Peter's old sword, which I immediately was like, it's kind of a jerk move there, Caspian. He's like, hey, you want to you touch your brother's sword? Can't have it, but you can look at it. And what does Edmund get for his troubles? His old flashlight from the last movie that he dropped, which, if you remember, the last line... And Prince Caspi in the second movie was, Hey, can we go to Narnia so I can get my flashlight back? There you go, Edmund. You got it. Boom. All <laughs> the big cliffhanger moment from the last movie is done. We can finally rest easy again. Now, Caspian is about to reveal his mission to the two Pevensies. But before he does, Lucy takes a moment to brush her hair behind her ear and ask Caspian if he's single. And I screamed at my TV, Stop it! It's gross! <laughs> Stop! This guy kissed you. Oh, she's your like, s- Susan's gone. No, the last that, that's my point. The last time you saw him, he was making out with your sister. That's who you're going to go with? Well, oh, oh, I'm sorry. She's moving in now. That's spoiled meat. 
Listen, I'm not going to go uh, after a guy that my sister makes out. But <laughs> 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 well, she was like, Caspian, are you single? And then Caspian turns around and is like, nah, no girl can measure up to my last boo, your hot sister. She can't find me one. So, yeah, that shuts, <laughs> shuts Lucy down pretty hard. <laughs> But then Edmund asks Caspian, why are we here? To which Caspian replies, I've been asking myself the same thing. Sick burn, dude. Sick burn. I mean, Caspian, just right off the bat, is just... he. What are we, at the roast of Edmund and Lucy? Hey, you want to touch your brother's sword? Can't t- keep it, but you touch it. Here's a flashlight, you little dork. Why are you here? <laughs> <clears throat> But then the king tells the two ancient rulers of Narnia, remember, Edmund and Lucy are now the high king and queen, because they're fancy like that, that he's looking for the seven lost lords of Narnia. And these lost lords were driven into exile when Miraz usurped the throne before the last movie took place. Now the lords have fled to a place called the Lone Islands, and no one has heard from them since. Probably because phones aren't a thing, the telegraph isn't a thing, and there's no mailing service in Narnia. So it doesn't surprise me that if you move to a place called the Lone Islands, you know, you're not dropping a line every once in a while. But then Reepicheep has a mission of his own. He wants to travel to the literal end of the world and find the country of Aslan, the god sh- or the lion-shaped god king of the world Narnia. While Lucy's just enjoying her time in Narnia, including waving at just absolutely terrifying CGI mermaids, Edmund and Caspian are trying to kill each other in a sword fight to entertain the crew. I'm sorry, they said that in the script that this was a fencing match between the two of them, but they were swinging them swords awfully hard at each other's heads. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then Eustace pops up from... uh, Mm -hmm. Luke, you have a dentist appointment (laughs) here in about an hour, so we gotta... (laughs) How do we know Narnia isn't real? I mean, you know, the multiverse, stuff like that. I don't know why you would ever... What what did I say that made you think that I don't believe Narnia is real? I was just pondering and just wondering if there was a way for me to get to Narnia. But I also don't live in England. Luke didn't watch And apparently if you live in America, if you live in America, you can't get there. Yeah, you can't go to Hogwarts and you can't go to Narnia. Everyone already knows this. Man, America might not be the greatest country in the world. You have to go to America's version of Hogwarts, which is Weasel Cysts. Weasel Cysts. <laughs> Eustace, after the terrifying mermaids, Eustace pops up from below deck just to remind everyone that he's still in the movie. Eustace is just having an awful time still. He, he can't wait to get to land so he can find the British consulate and find his way home. Now all this comes to a sudden stop when someone spots land. They come to Narrowhaven, the capital city of the largest Lone Island. The Minotaur calls for two rowboats to be prepared, and Edmund, Eustace, Lucy, Reepicheep, and Caspian all get in the first boat and lead the party ashore. Before they left the Dawn Treader, though, the creepy captain, a bald name whose name I cannot remember, but he is creepy, notices something off about the town. There aren't flying the Narnian flag. And Captain Creepy turns into Captain Obvious as he says, That's suspicious. No. Which leads me to ponder... He's a little creepy. 
after beating Captain Creepy, why does every Narnian film need a creepy guy? I mean, Mr. Tumnus in the first film was their token creepy guy. Then you had Mraz. I mean, he was a bad guy. He deserved to be creepy, but he was still creepy. And now we got Captain Creepy. I don't know. I watched VeggieTales a couple lived? of times. There weren't even a guy in that movie. Have you ever lived somewhere where there wasn't a creepy guy? There's always a creepy guy. The suspicions that Captain Creepy posited are all but confirmed when they walk into the town and find it largely deserted. And inside an empty town hall, they find a ledger that recorded the purchase and sale of products. And what were those products, you asked? Slaves of the human persuasion. And then out of nowhere, red ropes fall from the ceiling as Cirque du Slavers rappel to the ground and surround our heroes. Pause there, because that was a good joke I wrote. I know it's lost on YouTube to uncultured swine, but Cirque du Soleil does a lot of, like, tricks with, like, cloth and stuff and acrobats spinning around and doing all these things. And I'm just saying that those slavers artistically repelled down those ropes. Like, you had one guy, like, twirling his way down. Another guy was, like, climbing upside down. Get there. <laughs> the Cirque du Slavers rappel to the ground and surround our heroes, and the leader of the Slavers, a man who looks eerily like a live version of Jafar from the film Aladdin, captures the useless Eustace and threatens to kill him if Caspian and Edmund refuse to surrender. With that, Lucy, Eustace, Edmund, and Caspian are enslaved and thrown into a dungeon. In the dungeon, they find an old man with a long gray beard. And at first, I'm thinking that Santa has made a cameo in this movie just like in the first. However, I'm sadly mistaken. This ain't Santa, just an old bearded guy. Ho, ho, ho. No, no, no. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. It, it turns out that the... Uh, Turns out that the unkempt older prisoner is Lord Burn, the first of seven lost lords who had been held prisoner for years. After staring at Caspian's face for an uncomfortably long time, Byrne recognizes the resemblance to Caspian or to Caspian's father, and realizes that he is being detained with the King of Narnia. And this prompts the old prisoner to spill the tea about Narrowhaven. Turns out that pretty much everyone has been enslaved, and those who don't get sold are given as a sacrifice to an evil fart cloud that rolls over the ocean. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> I knew the sacrifice. I didn't realize it was for a fart cloud. I don't know what else to say. It's a green cloud of mist. That's a fart cloud. <laughs> And conveniently, the Lord's story plays out below. As the captives look out their jail cell window, they see a cartload of frightened slaves being loaded onto a rowboat and shoved into the sea. A green mist rolls over the ocean and a fart cloud envelops the boat, and the vessel disappears, slaves and all. Lord Burn. I would like to know how how'd the boat get out there. It's like a current that takes it out there? Because the slaves weren't rowing out to the fart cloud. They weren't well, like, oh yeah, I can't wait to die. They were in a little cove where there's no waves. And so if you give it a push, it'll get out there. Oh. Lord Byrne then tells Caspian that his six companions set out to find the source of the mist, and they never returned, leaving Byrne to wallow in self-pity for his cowardice of not going with them. The next day, Lucy and Eustace are on the trading block, and Lucy is auctioned off for a respectable 150 gold pieces. 
course, Lucy's probably thinking, if Susan were here, she'd probably gone for 300 But when it's Eustace's turn, no one wants to buy the sniveling snob because he smells like minotaur poo. And when Eustace hears this, he is vehemently offended and lets the slavers know that he won the award for best hygiene at his school two years in a row. I found that really funny. Eventually, someone does bid for him. It's Reepicheep, who's standing on Cra- Captain Creepy's shoulders, and they've been disguised under a hood. And I asked the question, why did Reepicheep speak instead of Captain Creepy? No clue! Captain Creepy can talk, but Reepicheep talked for him. Huh? Guess it doesn't matter. And the rest of the Don Treader's crew were disguised in the crowd as well, freeing the slaves and defeating the slavers. During the fight, Eustace sneaks away with a plan to steal a rowboat and go back to the Dawn Treader alone, but he only succeeds in accidentally knocking Jafar out when he tries to get an oar in the water. Back in Narrowhaven, a distraught man named Rince is looking for his wife, Helene, who was in the longboat that was eaten by the far earlier. Caspian welcomes the man aboard the Dawn Treader. But before Rince leaves, he turns to his daughter, Gail, and tells the young girl to stay with her aunt. On shore, Lord Burns gives Caspian a crusty sword that's just encrusted in years of salt deposits. And he tells Caspian that the sword was one of seven that Aslan gave to the seven lords. And Caspian is like, I really don't want this crusty sword. Here, Edmund, you can put this crusty sword next to your flashlight, you big nerd. And he hands him that sword. Back on the Dawn Treader, Eustace is writing in his diary about his experiences in Narnia, and how he still doesn't believe it's real, and how Edmund is spending all his time trying to decrust the crusty sword. A seagull lands in front of him, and Eustace asks the bird if he knows where he could find some food, and the crew sees Eustace talking to this bird, and they all laugh at him. Oh boy, what an idiot. Everyone knows that in Narnia, mice, horses, beavers, badgers, hedgehogs, wolves, foxes, bears, and other animals talk, but birds can't talk, you moron! Oh, <laughs> birds apparently can only go psst. Because remember in the first movie, there was a bird that clearly went psst twice to get their attention. But apparently that was one of them special talking birds that we don't know about. That was back in the day when people believed. Now they were faithless and they had turned into animals. And the, yeah. the seagulls of all people had abandoned their human-like nature. I mean, yeah. if anyone was back going to they, abandon... Back when they believed, back in that faithful time when the white witch has turned the world into an eternal long winter. <laughs> they still believed. They still had hope, but now... No, they, they didn't. didn't they hope. literally That's, did not have hope because Christmas never came. That seagull, faithless, worthless. You tell me that was an hopeless. agnostic seagull. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't seagulls be agnostic if I they mean, could I'm be... Not- I've never once met a believing seagull, <laughs> ever. That's because that's because they don't exist. There. Have you ever met a believing minotaur? Yeah, seven. That's exactly why they did the movie the way they did it. Exactly. But Eustace has had enough of their taunting and goes below deck, where he finds the rations. And he finds himself a nice orange, but Reepicheep sees this, and he ain't letting that orange go without a fight. After all, stealing is a capital offense on the boat. You're a murder kid for an orange, Reepicheep. Come on, bub. Now Eustace has had enough of Reepicheep's constant japes and grabs the mouse's tail. 
big mistake. That tail was a gift from Aslan, and you do not touch the tail. Reavacheep then demands a duel, and arms Eustace with a big old kitchen knife, and the two get into a fight. In the beginning, Reapacheep shows his dominance as a superior sword fighter, but soon, become, or, but soon it becomes apparent that the vermin is using this duel as an opportunity to train Eustace how to sword or how to fight. And Eustace actually seems to be enjoying himself in spite of everything until he trips over a basket, and out of the basket spills Gale, the little girl. Then creepy Captain walks over to the girl and creepily hands her an orange, the same one that Eustace stole, welcoming her aboard the ship as an extra crew member. And kids, if a creepy captain offers you an orange, you'd probably take it because scurvy's <laughs> a real thing and you need that you need those vitamins. <laughs> I thought they were gonna make something of like this guy and his kid. Nah. Uh what's his name? R- uh Rince. But I feel like that was his storyline was a disappointment. Are you telling me that his storyline was a little rinsed out? Yeah. That night, the Dawn Treader puts a shore on another island. And then, they take that shore and put it back on the island they got it from. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That night, the Dawn Treader puts a shore on another island. This one they assume, or they assume is uninhabited because there are no towns or businesses in sight, and they decide to spend the night sleeping on the beach. That evening, when everybody is out, disembodied <laughs> voices can be heard whispering, and the, only th- and the only thing that these voices are leaving behind are giant footprints in the sand, and they notice Lucy, who fell asleep reading a book and decided to abduct her. An invisible hand carries Lucy inland, where they try to intimidate her, by telling the girl that if she could see them, she would be very intimidated. And the whole scene turns into a Monty Python sketch right in front of our faces. The voices tell Lucy that they need her to sneak into the oppressor's mansion, which is an invisible house on the island, and find a spell book. And if she finds that spell book and finds the incantation inside of it and says it, then the voices will be visible again. They warn her, Careful of the oppressor, because the oppressor can be very oppressive. Lucy asks the voices, is this, why can't they do it is themselves? Is this in the book? I have no idea. I didn't get to read it in time. Oh. Lucy asks the voices why they can't do it to, or can't do it themselves. Why can't they go in there and read their little little spell? To which the voices respond that they can't read, or write for that matter, or add. And with that, Lucy reluctantly agrees. Back on the beach, Caspian awakes to find Lucy missing, and the king wakes up Edmund and the rest of the crew, and they go searching for their missing queen. Inside the mansion, Lucy finds a spell book. And inside the book, she finds all sorts of neat spells. One spell she decides to try out, and she makes snow fall over the or fall. She makes snow fall all over the mansion's library. And boy, is she just am- amazed at this! And you can tell she's amazed because she just stands there with her stupid mouth agape for like fifteen minutes. Just, and I'm like, calm down, Lucy. You're acting like you've never seen snow before, and you didn't just fight a war two movies ago to get rid of magical snow. Why are you so happy to see this? <clears throat> 
Another spell catches her attention. This one will make her look like Susan, or in other words, beautiful. Suddenly, Lucy, Lucy hears Aslan's voice calling her name. It sounds like Aslan doesn't want her to mess with that spell. But Lucy's like, shut your mouth, you big cat. I can do what I want. She tears out the spell and puts it in her pocket for later. Finally, Lucy finds the spell to turn things visible and says it. Just in time, too, because outside the mansion, the voices have captured Caspian, Edmund, and the rest of the crew. And then they turn visible. Turns out, these aren't terrifying, intimidating monsters, but short creatures that hop around on one big foot. <laughs> and they're called Duffelpuds, which I imagine if I said as a kid, I'd get my mouth washed out. <laughs> Luke, why don't you mention that to your mom, Duffelpud? Duffel pud. See how she reacts. Yeah. Diane, you're a duffel pud. I just can't imagine. I mean, I was trying to think of like some kind of spiritual application for this and whether or not it was like actually in the book. And I just felt not, like this whole scene was like, why? Not everything has to have a spiritual application. Sometimes it's like it reminded me of the trolls in The Hobbit. Like the troll scene where. Bilbo's trying to to keep the trolls talking and the sun comes up and they get turned to stone. Like I think it was just like a fun little fantasy scene. And before you ask maybe before you ask the Hobbit came out in the 30s and this book didn't come out into the 50s. I mean maybe I I feel like the trolls are kind of like I mean they're they're a decent part of the story that's written in well. I, I honestly and I don't know thought the, I I honestly thought this was a pretty funny moment. I enjoyed this. I, I chuckled at a few things. The intimidating thing. If you could see us, we'd be really intimidating. That was pretty funny to me. That was I, that made me chuckle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was it was comedic humor, but I kind of feel like it was just like a filler scene. Yeah, but at the same time, this movie is only an hour and forty four minutes long, so I'm going to let it go. Because it's 45 minutes shorter than the other two movies. You can have a little funny filler scene if your movie isn't over two hours long. Inside the mansion, Lucy meets a man by the name of Koreakin, who is the keeper of the island. Now, Koreakin looks like a British version of Larry the Cable Guy. So I guess <laughs> that would make him Larold the Lorry Lad. Get her done. Instead of getting up, get her done, his catchphrase would be Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. There you go. So Larold the Lorry lad leads Lucy outside, and she introduces him to Caspian and the rest. And Larold apologizes about the duffel puds and says that he turned them invisible to protect them from evil, or the force behind the green fart cloud. And he disperses the duffel puds by tossing pocket lint at them and turning them invisible again. And as he does this, one of the duffel puds says, You're so oppressive. And Lerald responds, I've not oppressed you. To which they respond, But you could have if you wanted. Lerald then shows off this uh, awesome animated and interactive map of the uncharted eastern part of the ocean. And he tells Caspian, Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace that they need to make their way to Aslan's table. It's broke in the first movie, but apparently this is a different table that Aslan owns. Aslan is a lion with two tables. Oh, and to get there, they all, all they need to do is follow a blue star. So there was really no point in his fancy map, was there? Yeah. <laughs> Shooting holes in this movie right and left. <clears throat> 
Laryl then tells them that if they want to defeat the evil that's plaguing the land, they need to collect all seven of Aslan's swords and place them on the table at the same time. And Caspi's like, seven swords? That's going to take forever. But then Laryl's like, no, it really won't. Two's on one island, and then you already have one, and then three are actually going to be at the table. So it's really not going to take that long at all. They're, they're, they're all real convenient. Just, just you need seven of them. And so... Uh, <laughs> And finally, before they head off, Lerald the Lori Lad warns that they're about to face tests of morality. And if they wish to defeat the evil fart cloud, they first need to defeat the evil fart cloud inside themselves. How will they be tested? Well, let's just look at the weaknesses of our heroes for a moment. Lucy is just so horrendously ugly. So she's the in so she's envious of pretty girls, especially her sister. Edmund is tired of being treated like a kid and playing second fiddle. Eustace is just a planner's ward of a human being. Just horrible all the way around. While Caspian doubts himself and does not believe he can be a good ruler like his father. And with that information, the adventure continues. The Dawn Treader sets sail. This time, they sail straight into a massive thunderstorm. For two weeks, the crew is rocked and rolled, I assume, by the massive squall. Everyone soon becomes miserable. Well, everyone except for Reepicheep, who is annoyingly optimistic. Even Captain Creepy wants to give up, but Caspian refuses on account that there's a father and daughter on board who would love to see their wife-slash-mother again. And Luke said there wasn't a point to them being in this movie. But Captain Creepy But Captain Creepy warns the king that storms like these make crews do some terrible things. Does that mean we're about to witness a mutiny? Will the Minotaur gore poor Lucy and maybe a few more because the storm made him sore and Eustace's snores and voted for Al Gore? I'm not sure, but they should find a shore before the Minotaur gores more. And- <laughs> Ah, thank you for that. In reality, nothing is going to happen. I don't know why that line was in the movie, because nothing bad happens, and everybody's cool the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) But during the storm, the hideous Lucy decides to try out the beauty spell she stole from Laryl the Lori Lad. After saying the incantation, Lucy finds that she's changed into the beautiful Susan. Then she's teleported off of the storm-tossed ship into a bright, sunny lawn. There she sees her brothers, Edmund and Peter, and the three of them are asked to pose for a picture. But Lucy, but Lucy Susan, asks where Lucy Lucy is at, only to find out that Lucy Lucy had never been born. And the brothers are clueless when she brings up Narnia. And Lucy wakes up screaming and finds Aslan standing beside her. And he scolds her for not realizing that she's beautiful and powerful in her own way. He also tells Lucy that if Lucy or that if Lucy wasn't Lucy, then Narnia would have never been saved from the White Witch, because Lucy discovered Narnia after all. With this information, Lucy has a new appreciation for who she is, and she burns the spell in the fireplace and runs through the ship shouting Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas, Edmund, Caspian, and Eustace! Merry Christmas, you old Narnia savings and loan! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of. 
I was like, man, I mean, this is this is the shortest retelling of It's a Wonderful Life I've ever seen. It was a five minute subplot in this movie. <clears throat> you know, I thought this was going to go further too, and uh, like she stole this page, and I thought it was going to be some big thing. No, but now that, that's the beauty of this movie, though. I loved it. She stole the page. She said it. She was transported away. Five minutes later, she realizes her mistake, burns it, we're done with the page, moving on. I love it. It wasn't drawn out, it wasn't long, it was succinct, it served its point, and it went away. Uh, I don't know. I can see why the series ended on this movie. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think this movie Uh, is maybe the best. However... However, when Lucy cast the spell, some of the green fart clouds spread out into the boat and into the sleeping quarters where Edmund and Caspian were sleeping. Edmund wakes up to the worst thing anyone can wake up to. (laughs) Ilda Swinton asking him to become her queen. But the cloud quickly dissipates as Lucy... Her king. Yes, sorry. Tilda Swinton asking him to become her king. But the cloud quickly dissipates, and Lucy and Edmund share tales of their mutual insomnia. The next day, the Dawn Treader finds another island. This one truly isn't uninhabited. Part of the crew split up to find food and replenish ships, uh, or, the, or replenish the ship's diminished pantry. Now, they make a point in this movie to two times say, we're running out of food and water. They were just in a thunderstorm for 14 days. You're telling me that there is no way to collect water for 14 days as it falls down on that boat? What they needed was a catch drum. If you needed some food, I get it. But don't tell me you don't have water from that storm. Don't tell me. That's well, dumb. when you only have rum bottles, you know, the top of them is like real narrow. So you can't catch water very well in them. And your barrels just don't do a very good job. It's dumb. The next day, the Dawn Treader, well, instead of maybe pumping the water off, because you see them like bailing water out of there, maybe instead of pumping it out of the of the ship, yeah, I don't know, save a bucket or two. <coughs> Throw a bucket or two in your water supply for tossing it overboard. There, you weird little fawn. The next day, the Dawn Treader finds another island. This one is truly uninhabited. Part of the crew splits up to find food to replenish the ship's diminished pantry, and Edmund and Lucy and Caspian decides that while the crew is engaged in backbreaking labor, they're just going to go have a nice time splunking. At the bottom of a cave, they find a pool of water with a golden statue of a man at the bottom. Edmund, who hasn't forgotten his days as the lead investigator of the Narnian Archaeological Forensic Investigative Agency, puts his detective training to good use by poking the statue with a stick. And yes, that's a callback to last episode. Boom. Anywho, he pokes it with a stick. Surprisingly, the branch turns to gold in his hand. Then they realize that the statue is actually one of the seven lost lords who must have fell in the pool and became gold himself. They see his sword, unchanged by the water. But Edmund is too preoccupied with the knowledge that whatever is dipped in the water is turned to gold. They see the sword unchanged by the water, but Edmund is too preoccupied with the knowledge that whatever is dipped in the water is turned to gold. I'm not going to lie. If I was there, and Edmund was all kneeled up against the side of this water, and they know that if they fell into it, they turned to gold, I would have crept up behind him and just gave him a little shove and then pulled him back and said, Save your life! I would have done that. I would have done that to anyone. That was a perfect wasted opportunity there, Caspian. King Caspian. 
But then Edben picks up a seashell and dips it quickly in the water and drops it on the dry sand, and it turns to precious metal in front of his eyes. And Edmund picks up the shell and just stares at it for a while. Lucy eventually asks Edmund what he's, or what's he staring at, which Edmund should have replied, It's a golden seashell. What does it look like? That's what I'm staring at. What do you mean, what am I staring You just saw me do it. You just saw me put it in the water and pull out. You knew it was a seashell on the... Oh, oh I wish you were Susan. He's staring at it with lustful intent. Of course he is. Edmund sees himself having all the riches that he deserves as a king, and this pool can give it to him. Meanwhile, Caspian sees it as a resource that belongs to him as the king of Narnia, and he'll not let Edmund take one cent out of his Narnian kingdom, and the two start to argue, and only Lucy telling them to just shut up stops the duo from murdering each other. Once they are snapped out of their greedy trances, the two are cool with each other and just skip on out of the cave. It's all good. While that's going on, Eustace goes off to explore on his own and falls into a crevice that is filled with gold, silver, and other treasures. He immediately cheers up, thinking that something good is finally happening to him on this trip, and he begins to scoop up as much treasure as he can carry. He stops a moment when he notices a skeleton wearing a golden armband, and he thinks about it. But he's like, nah, Holmes, forget it. I'm going to get that bling. And he puts the armband on. Back on the shore, the boats are being loaded up with the bit of food the crew could find. And that's when Eustace's absence is noted. Caspian and Edmund go together to hunt down the stray cousin. While they don't find the missing boy, they do find his charred clothes in a diary. So now it seems we're on the hunt for a burnt naked guy. But before they could start to look, two of them notice that the skeleton happens to be one of the lost lords, and they pick up his sword. Then out of nowhere, a big old dragon comes swooping down into the air, and everyone's scared for a little bit. Until the dragon picks up Edmund and carries him high into the air. And the dragon apparently had time to burn across the island the words, I am Eustace. Snyroon's like, hey guys, I think this dragon, yeah, I think he might be Eustace. Turns out that the treasure Eustace was going through was cursed. It belonged to a dragon, and everyone knows that dragon's treasure's cursed. Unless you were an idiot that was born on Earth, Eustace. Smog's treasure wasn't cursed. I don't care about Smog. We're in Narnia right now. Bilbo just picked that thing up and picked up the Arkenstone. Walked right out of the cave. He's like, see you. Turns out that when Eustace put the bracelet that he found on the dead guy onto his arm, it turned him into a dragon. And now he can't take the bracelet off because dragons are big and the bracelet was small. And the sun's setting and Lucy and Edmund and Caspian and Gale and Reepicheep all agree to stay with Eustace on the beach until morning. That night, Reepicheep notices that dragon Eustace is crying. It's just the most pitiful thing you ever did see. So, Reepicheep scurries on over to him. He says, hey guy, you mind if I squeak on in here? Now, Reepicheep may be showing compassion here because he does go over and try to comfort Eustace as he's crying as a dragon. But I think Reepicheep is actually uh, kind of a turd because he was all big and tough when Eustace was a was just a little boy. But now that Eustace is a dragon, Reepicheep starts changing his tune a little bit. Huh? He ain't picking on Eustace anymore. Now that Eustace can just go and barbecue a mouse and have a little mouse kebab for dinner, that's when Reef and Cheap turns his story around and goes, huh, maybe I should be nice to this big old dragon. 
I don't know. Reaper Cheap's fought plenty of uh, giant monsters in his time, and he seems to hold his own pretty well. Reaper Cheap knows it's better to be a dragon's friend than a Eustace's enemy, and he goes over to keep the beast company and comforts Eustace by telling him some stories of his previous adventures. The mouse also points out that becoming a dragon is extraordinary, and extraordinary things only happen to extraordinary people. The next morning, everyone sees a bright blue star, and they decide to sail after it. Even though a creepy mermaid is like, hey, bud, maybe don't go that way. They're like, shut up, mermaid, we got this. <laughs> mermaid was right. <clears throat> sure enough, they get out into the open ocean, and the wind dies. As if something doesn't want them to go any further. Looks like a long day of rowing ahead, till Eustace wraps his big old dragon tail around the ship's figurehead and just tows the ship behind him. Which goes to show you, children, that sometimes you have to completely change everything about yourself to become useful to anyone. <laughs> what a message. <laughs> Maybe the lesson is God can should I don't know what the lesson is. The lesson is... <laughs> Maybe some, God will have to remake you. Sometimes you have Maybe to God literally have to you not to... be yourself <laughs> in order to be useful. <laughs> God has to make you into what he wants. And if he has to make you into a dragon, then that's what has to happen. Nah, that's not if God I... made me into a dragon, I don't really feel like I would be that disappointed. I mean, I probably would because I'm not used to being a dragon. I like being a Zach. I'm being not a Zach's been pretty sweet. You would be a Zach over a dragon? Yeah. Because think about it. Everybody wants to kill a dragon. Nobody wants to kill a Zach. I mean, yeah, some people yeah, probably but do. But... I wouldn't be so sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to kill a Zach. I can name you six right now. That <laughs> night, the Dawn Treader lands at another island. The island where Aslan's table is always spread. There, the crew finds... The Island of Misfit Toys. The Island of Ramondu is actually the name. But there, the crew oh, finds three more of the Lost Lords tangled up in thorns at the end of the table. They're not dead, but they are cursed. But they're not worried about those guys. They can be alive and curse all they want. They just want their swords. Ah, they got six of them now. Six swords. And they lay them all on the table and they all turn blue, but they still need one more. Then the blue star appears to them and takes the form of a young woman named Lily Andil. And when Caspian remarks that she's beautiful, Lily Andil remarks, I can change my form if it would make you more comfortable. To which Edmund and Caspian no. both shout, No. And I laughed at this pretty hard. This was a good joke. I did too. Then she encourages them to eat freely <laughs> of the fruit of Aslan's table and assures them that the three lords are not dead, but only under a sleeping th spell. Because when they were there, they were half mad and tried to kill each other. Basically, she says, if you act like a jerk at Aslan's table, you're going to get cursed. Matter of fact, that's the motto of Aslan's Table Restaurant. Come on over, Aslan's Table. It's got the best spread in town, but if you act like a jerk, you're going to get cursed. And then Liam Neeson Lion comes out and is like, I guarantee it. Lily Andel then tells them that they need to sail to one more island, the Dark Island, home of the evil fart cloud, and of every man's nightmare. Which is odd, because I expected there to be like a gaggle of mother-in-laws on that island, but there wasn't one. So I'm not sure where she got the every man's nightmare nonsense from. 
I love you, Kiki. Then the star, <laughs> then the star tells them that they need to sail to the island and find a very bearded man doing his best Gandalf impression. This man is the last lost final lord, and he's got the last sword, and he's just crazy as a lark. Now this island is going to be their greatest test, for the island will make any man's nightmare take real form. And Lucy and Gale are like, thank goodness we're women. You don't have to worry about this. So they go on a trip in their little pirate ship, going through the fart into the dark. They gotta find a lord who is out of his gourd and find the last Oslan sword. As they sail, Caspian gives his sword that once belonged to Peter, to Edmund, because Edmund put his sword on Aslan's table. Reepicheep, riding atop the dragon Eustace's head, struggles to give Eustace a pep talk, being like, hey Eustace, stop being such a sissy, we gotta go fight. Or, Don't turn around, no, go back towards Fart Cloud Island. And Eustace like, okay. <laughs> As the Dawn Treader approaches the Dark Island, the evil fart reaches out to it. Though the men do their best to ignore it, Rince sees a vision of his missing wife. Captain Creepy sees a thick fog that robs him of his sight. Caspian sees a vision of his father, Caspian the Ninth, telling him that he's just terrible as a king. And Edmund sees the least tempting temptation of all. Tilda Swinton promising to make him a man. Gross. <laughs> now, what she meant by that was that she will make him a king, but her words literally said, Hey, Edmund, I can make you a man. No, Tilda Swinton. No, please don't. <laughs> Thanks for the offer, but I think I'll have to pass. <laughs> Finally, they hear the crazy calls of the last lost lord. And Eustace swoops down and picks up the last lost lord and drops him and his sword on the ship. The crazy man looks at Caspian and is like, you know, you look a lot like your dad. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you now. But he also ushers a warning. He says, laboriously listen to my large lesson, lads. Lay off and let up any little thoughts you may have laid lone in your little mandula oblongata, for if you lose control of your logic and let loose a lost thought, it will infallibly loom largely over all ye little ladybugs. And everyone's real confused. <laughs> He's like, look, I've been practicing literation on that rock. It didn't really work. I'm sorry. Uh, don't think of anything, because if you do, the fog will make that thought real. And Edmund's like, oops, I'm sorry, guys. And then the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man just rises up out of the water. <laughs> the only way they can destroy it is by crossing the beams, Scott. They have to cross the beams to destroy the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Luke, you don't get that joke because it was from Ghostbusters, and I know anything with ghosts in it you weren't allowed to watch as a child. I wasn't allowed to watch that. The language is too bad. He's yeah. a creep. Stay Puft Marshmallow Man isn't there, mm -hmm. but really what 
uh, Peter thought of was a sea snake. Eustace flies into battle and attacks the serpent with all the fire he has. But the serpent takes Eustace in his jaws and flings him around a little bit and throws him onto a rock. But Eustace recovers and blows some more fire on the serpent. And then the, the crazy guy they just picked up decides to throw the, the sword of Aslan at the snake but he misses completely and just right into Eustace's shoulder. So Eustace is like, oh, why? Why'd you do that? Rawr! And he flies, flaps away. Eustace flies off to uh, towards uh, Aslan's table island and he makes a bad landing in the sand. Meanwhile, the sea serpent wraps itself around the Dawn Shredder, threatening to crush her. And Edmund and Caspian work real hard to steer the Dawn Treader towards the rocks in order to ram the serpent off of the boat. Then Edmund gets up there with his little flashlight and sword and he challenges the serpent. And Caspian is still struggling with the wheel. All they need to do is smash this little snake. This little this little sneaky snake right against the rock. No win. Dragon Eustace wakes up on a sandbar and Aslan's there. And Aslan's like, Rawr, and he burns off Eustace's dragon skin. Eustace wakes up, finding himself back in his old Eustace form, with the seventh sword nearby. And he takes it in his hand, and he realizes that he's on the island with, with, with Aslan's table on it. So while the Dawn Treader's crew is, is fighting against this serpent, Eustace is racing towards the table. But Green Fart is just flying around them, trying to stop him. And then Eustace is like, nah, whoever smelt it, dealt it. And he's just ching, 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 cutting that fart all up. <laughs> now Edmund is back fighting against the snake, and it looks like the end for, for Eddie, because the snake is bearing down on him. And then suddenly Peter's sword turns blue, and he realizes that the sword has power in it, has the power of Aslan deep down inside. And so he stabs the serpent with it, and he... Tells the white witch who showed up to be like, hey, I'm Tilda Swinton. Uh, maybe don't stab my snake and I'll make you the king. He's like, seriously, Tilda, go away. You're not a temptation. Go away. You're scary looking. He's he's clearly tempted by the Tilda. Nobody was tempted by the Tilda. You don't lie, you were. I was not. I'm sorry. There's nothing tempting about Tilda Swinton. <laughs> so the serpent's dead. Tilda goes away. And the darkness lifts, and the Dawn Treader sees daylight again. At Aslan's table, the three cursed lords awaken, and the dark island is not dark anymore. And every longboat that the fart ate comes out to meet the Dawn Treader. And Rince and Gale are reunited with Helene. And then Eustace just apparently swims from one island to the Dawn Treader. It was a long swim, but he did it. And Reaper Cheap jumps in to be reunited with his old pal Eustace. Back on board the Dawn Treader, as they come within sight of Aslan's country, which sounds like a terrible water park in the hills of West Virginia. <laughs> you should make that establish it in Kentucky. Caspian, Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace and Reaper Cheap set out alone in the longboat to Aslan's shore because the rest of the crew, they don't want to meet Aslan. <laughs> it's like hey I'd like to meet this guy too no no it's just us and, and Aslan's I'll be honest Aslan's shore is not that impressive it's just like a like a sandbar surrounded with a bunch of white flowers and uh, there's just a wave 
that never crests. But Aslan joins them there and informs them that their journey is at an end. And Caspian asks Aslan if his dad's in Aslan's country. And Aslan's ghost, I can't tell you that. Secret. You can go check it out for yourself, but you'll never be able to come back. And Caspian's like, yeah, I better go be a king then. Then Reepicheep is like, well, hold on just a second. I'm a little mouse guy. I ain't got nothing for me back there. The only thing that, that I got going for me is my tail. Can I go to Aslan's country? And then Aslan's like, I mean, we just hired an exterminator to get rid of our last <laughs> infestation. <laughs> no, Aslan's like, come on in, you little mouse. So I cried at this. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest. I cried. What? I cried when Reepicheep. Why? Because, man, I've been reading these books pretty much nonstop, watching these movies and writing freaking reviews about them nonstop for the past three weeks. I've grown a little bit close to Reepicheep. Ugh. Man. You need to get off the estrogen pills. <laughs> it was a happy moment. It was like happy tears. I was sad because Reepicheep was saying goodbye to his friends, but he was going to a better country, and then I started thinking about my grandma. Mm. Men cry. And then Edmund turns to Lucy and it's like, Luce, it's time to go home. And Lucy understands that that's it for her and Edmund. This was their last trip to Narnia. They're not going to be returning. And Aslan tells the Pevensies when he's asked if by Lucy if they'll ever see him again. He's like, you can find me. You can find me over there, but I'm, I'm known by a different name in Earth. Jesus. He didn't whisper that. <laughs> That's what he's known by. He's like, but you had to learn about me here in Narnia so you could get to know me better out there. I'm like, hmm. And then Eustace is assured that, uh, well, his time in Narnia isn't over. He might be needed for, for one, one or two more adventures in the future. Then Aslan sends Lucy and Edmund and Eustace back to Earth, back the way they came. And they find themselves back in the room in Eustace's house. And Eustace hangs the falling painting back on the wall. And in it, the Dawn Treader is sailing away from them. And the film ends with Eustace's last diary record. About how, in the days that followed, the children spoke often of Narnia. And when the Pevensies leave, as they had to leave once the war ended. Eustace missed them. But we are given a hint of the sequel that will never happen when his mom, Alberta Scrub, shouts that a little girl named Jill Pole has stopped in for a visit. And for those literate fans out there, you'll know that Eustace and Jill Pole are the stars of the next book, The Silver Chair. The End. So here at Rotten or Righteous, we use the SEP scale, or the Stinky Snake scale, four categories, scriptural accuracy, we look at entertainment value, we look at parental control, and we look at should you watch it, and then we give things ratings. But first, I do want to talk about just a minute, as we did the previous two Narnia films, uh, did you see any Christian parallels in this movie? Mm, they were harder to see in this movie. That might have been, may have been because I was paying less attention. That, and you didn't have your glasses on. It's true. Um, 
I saw the the only one I really saw was in Eustace uh, being changed into something he didn't want to be to a complete God's work, and then him trying to change himself back and he couldn't because God had to do it. I mean, Aslan had to do it. And uh, but other than that, I mean, obviously like Dark Island and Sin, and but the fart cloud, the fart cloud. When you sin, you just start basically giving into the fart cloud. <laughs> that's that's uh, those are the ones I saw. I mean, there was that whole thing about you know realizing that you should use the gifts that God gave you and and not envy what someone else has. That you could still be powerful in your own right, which Lucy learns. Uh, there's the lesson that Lucy shares with the other girl that if they have faith, there's a chance to be reunited with your lost loved ones again. There's the whole thing about heaven, about how once we get there, there's no turning back. And so we need to enjoy our time while here on this earth. There's, uh, that one about how we learn about Jesus in his Bible so that we can see Jesus out into the world. There's a whole lot of lessons that if you actually look for this movie for five minutes that you see it. And there, again, there's oh. excellent applications. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I saw all those. No. Yeah. Liar. I'll be honest. You didn't even watch this I'll movie. Be I'll be honest. I didn't watch the movie. No, I. I'm no, just the, gonna... only, the only movie I've ne- I've not watched is Elevator or whatever that was called. Yes. Um, it's called Elevator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, no, I watched this movie. I, I could not. I had a hard time paying a lot of attention to this movie and even giving it a significant amount of thought just because I, I really didn't enjoy it. I love this movie. All right, let's get to our ratings. <laughs> Scriptural accuracy, like I just listed off, there's there's nothing in this movie that I disagree with and the lessons that you can see in it are easily applicable. So, 25. Scott! Sorry, I forgot you guys don't talk unless somebody yeah, says yeah. your name. Hey, I'm in, I've been in timeout all night. Um... <laughs> Yes, I'll also give it a 25. Thanks, Scott. Hey, Luke, how about you? <laughs> oh, now that you called on me, um, I'll give it 25. I mean, I think we gave the other ones 25 on scriptural accuracy, and I think this is pretty solid. Okay. Entertainment value. Scott, were you entertained? I was entertained. I enjoyed this. Um, I don't know that I enjoyed it as much as the first one. Probably enjoyed it more than the second one. Uh, but I gave it a 20. Okay, Luke. My ratings have been steadily coming down since the first one. Um, I feel like the first one was uh, highly entertaining. The second one was not so much. Felt like there were some filler scenes. Felt like some scenes were dragged out too long. I dropped my score. I'm going to drop it even more for this one. Felt like half the stuff in this movie was just like random stuff that they put in. It really didn't connect that well. They just added a bunch of uh, characters and storylines, and some of them went nowhere, and there were characters who didn't develop. And I'm going to give it a... Mm, I'm going to give it like a 10. Okay. That's wrong. Uh, no, uh, the first movie I gave it 20 because there were slow parts in it I didn't like. The second movie I didn't give a very high ranking to because I didn't really like that one. This one I was entertained all the way through from start to finish. It was short. It was sweet. It was beautiful. 25. Okay. Now, wrong. was there anything <laughs> in this 25. movie? Was there anything in this movie that uh, concerned you uh, as far as showing this to younger audiences? Scott. 
it, it was very mild. Um, just some of the some of the uh, arrows, sword scenes, but nothing to get too outraged about. I gave that a twenty-two. Luke, mm, yeah, I'm with Scott on this one. Fantasy violence—it's about all you get. So uh, twenty-two. I watched this one with Joseph as well. He was terrified in the first two movies. He watched this movie all the way through. Twenty-five. Okay, and finally, wrong. Should you watch it? <laughs> is there any redeeming thing in this movie? Anything that uh, stands out to you? Uh, as in, is this movie useful? I gave it a twenty-five. I think there's. I think there's use for all three of the movies, and I think there's use for this one. Um, I really didn't think I would enjoy any of these and I was quickly proven wrong. And like I said, this is, uh, I, this, this movie, it, it's close to my enjoyment compared to the first one, much better than the second one. So I gave it a 25. Okay. Luke. Hmm. Even though I didn't really find it that entertaining, I feel like there's value in the spiritual lessons. So I could see like definitely for kids, which I think the books are kind of designed for. Um, there's, there's good lessons to be learned. So I'll give it a 20. All right. And, uh, just like my last two ratings in this category, again, good lessons. It'd be a good movie to show to your youth group. 25. Wrong. Wow. Zach gives it 100%. It's a, it was seriously, it was the best. This out is of, your was, 100% movie. It was the best out of <sighs> your, it was, I gave the first one like a 98. This was better in my opinion than the first movie. So, at the end of the day, we gave Chronicles of Narnia Line Witch the Wardrobe an A+. Uh, we gave uh, Prince Caspian, I think, an A. And we gave this one, as well, uh, an A+, with 90%. And as usual, we use the Carleton University grading scale. Go Ravens! <laughs> For Rotten Righteous, I'm Zach Geiler. I'm Scott Judge. And I'm... Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith's younger brother, who's still alive today. Chimney Smith. Adams. <laughs> Chimney. His name is Chimney Smith. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we go, hey, Scott. Yeah, Zach. You know what the best thing about Switzerland is? Mm, I don't know, Zach. Mm, I don't know either, but their flag's a big plus. Yes, it is. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> oh, shoot. Hey, you know what? I heard that, and the funny thing is, the first time I saw that, I asked my sister-in-law, I'm like, what is an Indian in a cupboard? What's a cupboard? I, 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 don't, I don't listen how to this show. I have no idea what you're how talking did, about. <laughs> how did you escape you, the cupboard? The cupboard, yeah. You and Luke talked about this yeah, a couple I know. weeks ago. Me and Luke talked about so many things. It was so enjoyable. But now we're back, and we have to just deal with the situation. Um, <laughs> cupboard, which cupboard is, is like me. A, it's like a cabinet. I fell into a can of Sanka, by the way. 
was able to escape this spoon before it met the hot water in Grandma's coffee. What's a sink? Okay. I don't know. It's, it's coffee. Thing. <laughs> coffee. Coffee. Sanka. Sanka. S-A-N-K-A. Sanka. All right, I'm gonna fall asleep. You guys just waking me up when the podcast is over. Sanka. I think it came in an orange with an orange like cover. It has an Arabic guy on it. Is Senka coffee still made? Senka has disappeared from some local stores, and it's the only decaf that doesn't upset my stomach. I'm happy to be able to order it in bulk at a price comparable to grocery stores. That, according to Amazon.com, you can get an 8-ounce jar for... Hold on. Loading. Wait for it. $54.89. Wow. Eight ounces? Thanks. Grandma and Pat must have been drinking the expensive stuff. No, that was back in the 50s. Now they have to clear customs and take all the nuclear waste out of it in order to sell it in stores. That's why it's so expensive. You can make oatmeal cookies out of it. They were they hey, were drinking they were drinking ground manure patties. That's what they were drinking. That's what Sanka used to be. And then people discovered what coffee they were drinking. Uh Oh you are Eustace, Zach. You're the Eustace of this podcast. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> the most useful out of all of us, I agree. Because in this movie, well, Eustace, Eustace was out. the most useful out of all of us. Um, he was pretty useful in the movie, but he was also annoying. That right there needs to be the motto of this show from now on. Eh, we're pretty useful at the end, but we're also annoying. <laughs> I, I, I mean, really, is there anything else to say about us? 